online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Austria, a proud winemaking history, a whiff of scandal, the wonder of its indigenous grapes, and the wow factor for its finest wines. Freddie Bulmer from the Wine Society is here to share his passion for Austrian wine. Austria may still fly under the radar somewhat when it comes to profile in the wine world. And that may well be to its advantage for this country's historic winemaking traditions still offer a sense of discovery for most of us. With its striking number of small family producers, you could be forgiven for thinking that tradition rules. Yet it's also a seriously innovative wine producing nation with some of the highest standards and the most obvious transparency that you can find anywhere. Partly a positive legacy of the so-called antifreeze scandal of the 1980s. Grüner Weltliner, a grape variety that's still underrated for its versatility and ageability, is very much Austria's calling card, accounting for the majority of the vines planted. But the country offers so much more besides. There's its distinctive gastronomic Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc. And of course, there's red wine as well. Zweigelt is undergoing a renaissance in a fresher, crunchier style. And Blaufrankisch offers wines with real elegance and uh, finesse, not to mention amazing ageing potential. Well, Freddie Bulmer is uh, regular here on The Drinking Hour. He's the Austria buyer, amongst other things, for the Wine Society and uh, an all-round Austrian wine evangelist, uh, as well as a senior judge <laughs> at the IWSC. And he's chuckling already. Uh, welcome back, Freddie. Nice to be back. It's always a pleasure. I think last time, well, last time I saw you was in Austria, which is pretty, yeah. uh, pretty lucky. We were judging wines and uh, it was uh, it was a, a really uh, great experience. We'll come to that a little bit later on. Right. But I, I want to kind of kick off. I, I describe you as a, an Austrian wine evangelist and that's no exaggeration, is it? No, I love the wines. Um, Austria was the first kind of key wine region that I picked up as a buyer at the Wine Society uh, back in 2017. At the time, before taking it on, I didn't know an awful lot about Austrian wine. You know, it was very much a discovery for me at that point. But very quickly, I just fell in love with it. And there's something so uh, unique about Austrian wine, something so special. The people are fantastic. And it's very hard when you're working so closely with Austrian wines not to just completely fall in love with them. So, uh, yes, it's, it's not my fault, honest. It's, uh, it, was, it was almost impossible not to. <laughs> well, what's been uh, wonderful as uh, a Wine Society member, which uh, I have been for about 25 years, the wines from Austria, the range that you have, um, has kind of grown and got more exciting as as you've grown and got more exciting because it was one of your first um, <laughs> one of your first sort of jobs within the the, the buying uh, team yeah. as you said and and you really have taken it to another place I think 
Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, it's been a real privilege, actually, because when I first started buying the Austrian wines, we had a small handful and it was a really good foundation. Um, funnily enough, just last night, I was with a load of our Austrian suppliers who had come over to support us for a couple of Wine Society tastings in uh, London and, and Bristol. And we were having this conversation and saying that actually my colleague, Joe Locke, who was the Austria buyer at the Wine Society back in the early 2000s, was responsible for picking up a couple of the producers, which would now be considered, you know, Austria's very best. Um, she bought the likes of Brundelmeier and Schloss Goebelsberg to our to our list, but the range at that point wasn't much bigger than than, than those two, really. Um, and then, uh, as the years went on, the, the the range increased a little bit, and my colleague Sarah Knowles then was buying for the Wine Society and um, or buying the Austrian wines for the Wine Society. And the range grew to sort of eight or nine wines. And they were, again, a, a really solid foundation. She introduced a few more options at the entry level price point, which was great because it ultimately got Austrian wine into more people's baskets. And I was very lucky to, to start buying the Austrian wines here at the time I did, because it was at a time where uh, the business just pretty much gave me free reign to to buy the wines that I really believed in and, and, and buy those uh, wines that I was really excited by and tell the story of these delicious, uh, exciting wines. Um, and so it's been a fantastic journey. The range has grown considerably. And, uh, yeah, we, we've now got a plethora of, of producers um, uh, from many different regions throughout Austria. And uh, yeah, loads and loads of absolutely delicious wines. So it's been a really good, fun project for me over the last mm. few years. Yeah, and well done to Joe and to, to Sarah for their foresight mm. as well, obviously. Um, what uh, then defines Austria's wines to you? It's a really good question. I think one of the unique things about the wines from that country is it's incredibly high quality bar in general. Quality is very, very good across the board. Um, it's a it's a real privilege to judge Austria, and I know we'll we'll come to that a little bit later. Uh, but because you know, a very you'll get a very high hit rate, frankly, for for very good quality, at the very least tasty, drinkable wines. Um, so I think that's a real strength that Austria has. Stylistically, one of the unique characteristics, I think, is this really lovely, fresh vibrancy of fruit. Um, acidity is a word that we use heavily in the industry, uh, but a word which um, I think consumers understandably find difficult because the word acidity isn't a particularly appealing one. But when I talk about acidity here, I'm talking about this lovely freshness and energy in the wines. Uh, and Austria really uh, is, is a great example of a country that can offer that uh, in, in, you know, by the, by the spoonful. Um, it's fantastic. Or by the bucket load, I should say. That's even yeah. more impactful, isn't it? Um, and ageability as well. Uh, there aren't so many countries in the world that have such a strong offering of seriously age-worthy dry white wines. Uh, and that's across Gruner and Riesling in particular, I would say. But yeah, I think Austria actually has, a, on, on one hand, a very neatly packaged wine offering, and on the other hand, a very diverse one as well. So it's, yeah, I think it's a very exciting country that we should all be drinking, you know, we should all be drinking more of their wines, frankly. It's interesting you say that because you have these uh, great ageable wines that the, 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 the mighty Gruneveltliners and, and Rieslings that you mentioned. But then actually, uh, especially if you go to Austria and you go into a wine bar or into a restaurant, they're quite funky as well, aren't they? They do some kind of, mm. for want of a better word, some kind of batshit stuff that's um, really uh, <laughs> exciting. 
I, I don't think there is a better word. I think that's perfect, David. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's another thing which is great uh, about the Austrian offering is there are, uh, you know, a good number of very traditional, um, long-standing, uh, sort of classically styled wineries. But then also, in addition to that, there are, uh, there's a very exciting movement. You know, we, we probably use the, the term new wave a little bit too much in the wine industry, but Austria does have a very, very exciting new wave of, of, of wineries. Um, in particular, if we talk about a region like Burgenland, let's say, there's a, a fa- fantastic movement um, of, of these slightly more weird and wonderful, slightly more out there styles of wines, which are not, you know, not always... Uh, the most perfectly executed, let's say, but when they're done very well, they're fantastic. You know, they're really genuinely interesting, bursting with personality. And it's great to see that Austria can do both the the new and old school so well. And, you know, there's, there's a, a, well, there are a lot of great varieties planted in Austria, but one of the key ones, Grüner Weltliner, ha- has a fantastic potential to be able to do both very well. You know, it's a grape which lends itself to the old school and to the weird and wonderful, you know, funky, natural side of things as well. So, yeah, th- th- I really think that there is something for everybody, which is which is fantastic, of course. And that brings us neatly to a bit of history, because um, Austria has this proud winemaking history. And it was quite uh, brutally trashed by a few bad apples. So it has a bit of a checkered past, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I think one thing that um, people perhaps don't really consider is the incredibly long history of winemaking in Austria. So it's still seen as uh, somewhat of a newer or emerging region, I think, as far as a lot of the, you know, the, the UK market, let's say, is concerned. And that really comes from that uh, reset switch being hit uh, in the mid mid-80s with the wine scandal. But actually, Austria has been making wine for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, there are stories about uh, Pinot Blanc, uh, as an example, being brought to Austria by the Cistercian monks from Burgundy. Um, and you know we're going we're going back quite a long way here, um, and so it's not actually by any means a new young wine producing country. There are a lot of very historic estates, uh, a lot of tradition uh, to consider. But yes, uh, as we as we've sort of both mentioned, there was the wine scandal in the mid eighties, uh, which basically to a degree shut down the Austrian wine industry almost overnight, and it was thanks to a small handful of irresponsible producers. Adding, uh, I can't remember the name of the chemical now, but it's found in antifreeze to their wines to um, in, sort of increase the viscosity of the wine, because back in those days that was something which was which was considered to be linked to quality. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately or fortunately, actually, um, they got found out. It caused major problems. You know, exports fell off a cliff. Everybody who was making wine in Austria was affected, and they essentially had to start again from zero. But I remember speaking a few years ago with uh, a winemaker from Stadt Krems, um, fantastic winery in the city of Krems. And he was saying that, if anything, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to Austrian wine because it meant that they had a chance to uh, completely reset uh, and, and know that, you know, if ever they were going to be taken seriously again as a wine producing country, they had to focus on quality first and foremost. And they've done that. And Austria today has an incredibly high percentage of small uh, sort of boutique family wineries, you know, who are very much looking at quality over quantity. There's not that many big, big, big producers uh, in in Austria, certainly if you're thinking of the scale of somewhere like Australia, for example. Um, it just doesn't really exist in the same way. But 
that's great. That's fine because there are so many wineries who are going, no, you know what? We'd actually rather make less wine, do it really, really well. And that really, I think, shows. And, and that is to thank for what I mentioned earlier about this, this incredibly, almost uniquely high quality bar across the board. So it's, yeah. it's a really exciting place now. Really interesting. It's um, diethylene glycol, I think. And, well done, um, you think, uh, having just Googled that in your I, mind. Yeah, looked it up. Um, no, uh, it, it, apparently <laughs> um, there, it, it isn't even, even though it's called the antifreeze scandal, um, the substance used in antifreeze is ethylene glycol, I think. And, and so it, it actually was different. Not that it mattered because it was still a horrible chemical that shouldn't have been there. Yeah, but, it's not ideal. Yeah. No, not ideal. Um, but, you know, also it's very important. That nobody died um, as a result of this. It was a, a terrible scandal. It was an awful thing to do and it had a terrible consequence. But um, it's sometimes um, sort of uh, it is overdone, I think. But as you say, it, it cast this yes. terrible shadow, but it also led to this uh, rebirth. And um, let's talk about where they make wine, because it is um, very much focused um, in the east of the country, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. So um, pretty much all of the key wine regions of Austria are within uh, an hour or so drive of Vienna, which is very handy. So it does make it a fantastic wine producing country to go and visit. You can you can fit a lot in and you can actually base yourself in Vienna, pick up a hire car and, uh, you know, drive out to a wine region and, and, and back again. But, you know, starting at the sort of most westerly end of the <laughs> the eastern side of Austria, you've got uh, the Wachau, which is arguably the most famed for its fine wines historically um and then we follow that uh, follow the danube along from the wachau into vienna and you you go basically through wine region after wine region so it's it's everything is quite nicely bunched together which is great it's a lot going on in lower austria and then uh, over on the uh, sort of the southeastern the south and southeastern side of vienna you then are more into the sort of burgenland region which is most famed for its red wines right on the hungarian border and it's a very interesting area because it was made austria a lot later than somewhere like the Wachau, you know it's the border has has shifted um, with hungary over the over the years it's not dissimilar in that sense i guess to alsace uh you know with the, the french german border changing mm. throughout history so it's it's culturally quite a different place uh and then we've got we've got the styrian uh region as well which is uh the most southerly uh of, of austria's wine regions most famous really for sauvignon blanc uh yeah i think each of the regions has a has a great uh, identity, a very unique identity, I should probably say. There is uh, a lot to explore. There are a lot of different styles across all of those regions, which is fantastic. And again, going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, means that there's a lot of diversity uh, across the Austrian wine offering, which is course fantastic let's talk about a bit of that diversity and let's start with the most famous of them all you mentioned that at the start Wachau it uh, has this uh, reputation for for high quality it has a reputation for idiosyncrasy as well actually I think but there are regions that neighbor it in the Danube Mm. uh, area that are really sort of biting at Wachau's heels in terms of quality for fine wine aren't there Oh, absolutely. Yes. So directly next door to the Macau, we've got Kremstal, which uh, is, 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 has historically been in the shadow of the Macau a little bit. However, the quality of the wines there is absolutely fantastic. And considering that you literally can step from, from one vineyard in Kremstal and uh, step into the next vineyard and you're in the Macau, I mean, it's, it's not drastically different, certainly towards the western side of Kremstal. Uh, and then Kamptal, which uh, is the next one along. If you started in the Macau most westerly, then you would go through Kremstal and then ultimately 
Italy uh, into to uh, Camptal. And Camptal uh, is the home of uh, the Heiligenstein vineyard, big single vineyard, arguably one of the great sites for Riesling in Europe, if not the world. I mean, the, the, the Rieslings from the top producers and the Heiligenstein vineyard are just phenomenal. But yes, the Wachau has been has been considered historically the the sort of pinnacle of Austrian fine wine. But no discredit to the wines of the Wachau because they are still absolutely excellent and, if anything, better than ever. But yeah, the, the Kremstal, Kamptal, as as the neighbouring regions, um, have well and truly caught up for sure. So I think gone are the days where we would say, "Oh, Austrian fine wine." Well, that's the Wachau. It, it's in a, in a good way, far less straightforward than that now, which is which is great, and you can find you can find great value um, by by looking into some of these neighbouring regions. Oh yeah, we'll come to value a bit later on because it is <laughs> a fantastic place to uh, buy fine wine. Let's look at those grape varieties. You're a bit of a a Gruner nut. I think uh, when I first met you, you were banging on about Gruner Veltliner. So let's start there. It's a a great variety, isn't it? it? It's a fantastic variety. It's almost entirely unique to Austria, although there are now plantings uh, in a, f- a handful of other countries around the world. New Zealand has gotten behind Gruner to a degree, which is which is great. But not the I same. Gruner though, does. It? It's, it's not. not no, it's not. No, you're absolutely right. It's not the same. And and actually, I think you can draw a comparison. And, and admittedly, this is a niche comparison, but to a Sirtico from Santorini, where you can take the the uh, the uh, Sirtico out of Santorini, but then you're taking crucially the the Santorini out of the Assyrtico then, um, which is <laughs> yeah. a shame because I, I think um, a, a lot of the the uh, character that makes great Santorini Assyrtico great is actually coming from the terroir, and I think that's the same mm-hmm. with Gruner. Um, it's the terroir of Austria which makes great Gruner taste like great Gruner, so it is very hard to replicate that. But I think um, if there's any single grape variety which really does a great job of encapsulating Austria's sort of personality, its wine offering, its uniqueness, it would be Gruner Veltliner. It's uh, a, a grape which, when made in Austria, can produce wines from the sort of delicious good value entry level right up to incredibly fine, incredibly age-worthy, complex examples. So it's very versatile in that sense. And I think also you can compare it to Chardonnay for its ability to reflect its place. So it's a grape which I think the, the best examples aren't overworked in the winery. The best examples are made in the vineyard. Uh, they'll reflect the soil. They'll reflect the aspect. They'll reflect the the exposure to the sun, the, you know, the heat and so on. And can very vividly, uh, therefore, paint a picture of the place where they're grown. So that's also why it's great to get into the regionality of Austria. And you can do that just by drinking Gruner Veltliner from each of these regions. I mean, it's the most planted grape, certainly the most planted uh, white grape, um, but most planted grape in Austria. You can get it in just about every single part of, of Austria that produces wine. So therefore, you know, it's worth going out and finding a few examples from different regions and, and actually then being able to paint a, a good picture in your own mind as to what each of these regions is about, because Gruner does that very, very well. And it's a delicious gastronomic grape, isn't mm. it? It's a sommelier's best friend, I think. You often see them now in London on on um, wine pairings for tasting menus, which is great because there's that unique acidity. And I was speaking with a colleague on uh, Monday night uh, who was over for our Austria tastings, Andreas Vikoff, who's a master of wine from Austria. Lovely, lovely man. Um, and 
incredibly knowledgeable. And he was saying that actually Gruno is considered by many people to be a high acid variety, but it's not. Inherently, it's not a high acid variety, but in the cooler climate of Austria, the, the climate brings out this incredible freshness. And that freshness is what makes it a very, very good food pairing wine. So you've got a wine there then, which is on one hand, very charming, very approachable. I think good Gruner Veltliner, you should be able to, if you want to, just sit back and not need food and enjoy a very nice glass and not have to think about it. But at the same time, that wine actually is is deceptively good when it comes to food pairing because that acidity provides it with enough enough oomph if you like to to pair with any number of dishes and actually the austrians are big believers in um outside of pairing it with their own food with the, you know your schnitzels and so on uh, pairing it with lightly spiced say thai food uh, it works really really well with that as well so it's a very very versatile grape for food pairing and and i would say actually more often than not if you're not quite sure of what wine you'd like to pair with a, a dinner, a Gruner is, is a very safe bet. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, not too challenging, but sort of mm. challenging enough. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. exactly. And then there is Riesling. And um, I mentioned um, a year or so ago to, a, um, I think, a master of wine um, that I, we were just chatting about Riesling. And I happened to mention that I think I prefer as a rule, Austrian Riesling to most German Riesling. And uh, mm-hmm. she looked at me as if I was mad, absolutely insane. <laughs> um, but um, but, uh, but I, I, I still kind of um, think that. I, I think it, it's a, a lot to do with kind of um, texture and a, d- a degree of richness. But tell us um, what sort of defines the Riesling from um, Austria, if you can generalise. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic, actually, because it has very much flown under the radar versus German. German Riesling, which has been much better known for much longer, certainly again, you know, just uh, within the UK market. Austrian Riesling, uh, I think, is probably best known for for 95% of the time being pretty much bone dry. So very crisp, very zesty, very refreshing. There is uh, a, a bit of diversity again when it comes to the styles then within that. But you have some examples which are a little bit more kind of Baroque and a little sort of fuller. Um, historically, the reasoning from the Vakau would have been fairly weighty on the palate. Going back to the, the viscosity that we talked about when we were talking about the wine scandal a few minutes ago, it was that viscosity that uh, that they were looking for in the Vakau because it was it was considered um, a mark of a, you know, a grand fine wine. That now is associated more with a slightly, slightly old-fashioned style of reasoning. And that has been um, sort of tightened up a little bit. The Riesings across Austria now tend to be all about sort of lift and focus and freshness um, and and opulence, but a sort of a restrained opulence, if you like. In terms of characteristics, one thing that I think really does stand out uh, amongst very good examples of Austrian Riesling is this sort of orange blossom aroma, which seems to be uh, a bit of a theme that and com- that combined with a bit of a sort of a nice peppery spice they're often a bit spiced on the palate which is lovely but i think one of the unique things about austrian riesling again is its ability to age you know we're talking dry white wine here we're talking ultimately very good value dry white wine versus a lot of other great rieslings of the world but they're wines which will offer just as much complexity and just as much ageability as any other great riesling from anywhere else in the world so they're Definitely, definitely reasonings to to explore and get behind. It's no surprise, of course, working with Austria that I now drink a lot more Austrian reasoning than I do reasoning from, from anywhere else. Um, but it's been fantastic to see other people 
start to do the same, which is great. So um, no, they're they're on one hand these these complex, layered, um, very serious wines, and on the other hand, they have this incredible charm and drinkability. So yeah, mm. Austrian Riesling is I'm, something I'm very excited by. Yeah, great description, and I am one of those other people you mentioned. I probably drink more Austrian Riesling than I do uh, German or indeed from from anywhere else. So um, Mm. let's just talk uh, about any other white varieties that we ought to mention. And um, Sauvignon Blanc from uh, down in um, uh, Sudsteermark um, has a lot of fans Mm. as well, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's probably considered the key grape variety for that for that region, which is which is unique in that it's obviously a more internationally known or internationally planted grape variety but it has its own identity uh, in Sudsteermark for sure which is good to see um it's not quite as sort of um loud let's say as the New Zealand Sauvignons that people are quite familiar with um but it's also a little bit more uh sort of lifted and peppery than than Sancerre for example so it does have its own identity which is great um so it's a, a you know another very strong um, string in Austria's bow uh, in that sense, and another one that's worth mentioning too is Pinot Blanc. So I mentioned that um, when uh, we were talking earlier, and I was saying that it was actually well, it's been planted in Austria for quite literally centuries. Uh, and that was surprising to me when I first started going to Austria. I thought, well, no, 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 you know, I've just got to focus on the on the Gruner and the Riesling because they're the most important. And a winemaker stopped me and said, no, you realise Pinot Blanc has been here for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years you know it might not be technically indigenous to austria but it basically is it's almost been adopted um and so certainly in in um in burgenland in particular it's a very significant white variety which i i think um has a has a good strong identity in austria and it's one that i would certainly recommend not missing out on um it'd be it'd be nice to see people drinking a little bit more burgenlandish uh pinot blanc for for sure i think it's great stuff yeah and one more which is a bit niche but um confused me enormously when i first encountered it rotaveltlina <laughs> rotaveltlina is very niche yes you don't see so much of that around anymore rotaveltlina is quite a historic indigenous austrian grape variety which confusingly isn't related at all um to grunaveltlina but uh it produces really lovely pretty um fruit driven wines um however it's been uh, ripped up generally um, in favor of Grunewaldina because Rotavellina has very thin skins and it's very susceptible to, to rot and disease and is therefore not easy to make wine out of. And especially when Gruner is the, is the grape variety that you know fans of Austrian wine are probably most familiar with, it's very tempting for anybody who had a planting of Rotavellina to, to replace it. Um, there are still, thankfully, a few producers who have um, done a great job of of uh you know maintaining their rotavellina vineyards and they're making some really really interesting wines um in vagram in particular that's probably the region to look out uh you know for rotavellina um they still probably have the most significant plantings but it's very niche um but shouldn't be missed i would say yeah, I would agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, so let's talk red wine. And I'm going to stick with the mm. theme of niche and do it in almost reverse order, because the grape variety that I, I think I love the most uh, from Austria um, is Saint Laurent. Yeah, OK, interesting. So that Saint Laurent is one of three key Austrian red grape varieties and is the one that the Austrians themselves consider to be stylistically most like Pinot Noir. And it can make some very, very good wines. Um, I, I think in general, it's probably the one I, uh, 
in my experience, which suffers the most from a lack of identity. Not that that's necessarily to do with the grape, but I think it's the fact that a lot of producers have their own ideas of what it ought to taste like. So it can be a little bit harder for consumers to get an idea. But when it's done well, it should be very elegant, sort of lifted, semi-aromatic, that sort of Pinot Noir-esque nose with a little bit more body, a little bit more black fruit. Um, all three of the key Austrian reds uh, that we'll talk about, no doubt, in a minute, um, have a, a delicious freshness of acidity to them that I alluded to earlier on and, and a nice bit of peppery spice throughout as well. That's something that ties them together. But of the three, Saint Laurent is, is probably the one where if you're, a, if you're a fan of Burgundy, you're a fan of Pinot, that's a great place to start, absolutely. Yeah, I just think um, you're right. Uh, it is... Um, a bit patchy in terms of um, consistency, uh, for sure. But when it's done well, uh, it has this beautiful, ethereal quality to it, I think. Just, mm. yeah, yes. enchanting, really enchanting, which, you know, is um, true, of, as you say, of, of, of good Pinot too. Well, we're going in reverse order. So let's go to Blaufrankisch next, which is, um, I always consider to be the sort of most noble of, of their uh, red grape varieties. I don't know whether that's uh, correct or not, really. It's, it's a, I think it's a fair thing to say, for sure. Um, so it's, it's less planted than, than Zweigelt, which is the most planted um, red grape. And so you do find often uh, people who are promoting Austrian wine talking more about Zweigelt. But I think Blau Frankish, for me personally, is the, is the grape which offers the best wines at the top end. It's hard to make good, approachable, entry-level wine from Blaufrankisch because inherently the grape is giving the wines um, a sort of a denseness, a you know, really dark sort of licorice, black fruit kind of character, which which can be quite tough combined with, with its pretty full-on tannins and high acidity. So th- there are some similarities structurally that you could draw between Blaufrankisch and, uh, and, and Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo, of course, being well-known for high acid, high tannin. You have that as well, but you've also got a lot of color. It's a much darker uh, wine, a Blaufrankisch. But when it's done well, when it's made sensitively, when it's not over-extracted, and as is the case with all of Austria's red wine grapes, when it's not over-oaked as well, you can get some really delicious, unique, and again, very age-worthy red wines uh, from Blaufrankisch. I think it's a fascinating grape variety. There are more classic examples which do definitely reward keeping um you know even just sort of five five or six years of cellaring will will help these wines to really open up and sort of unfurl because they can be quite tightly coiled uh wines when they're young but as they unfurl they become these sort of silky fragrant medium to full-bodied reds which are very very rewarding uh i think black frankish at the top end is is really exciting yes there's a uh, a woman called Dolly Moore, who you'll know, I'm mm-hmm. sure, who's a, a wine mm-hmm. PR, but she also has a vineyard. And um, on a Reed Spitzerberg um, is certainly one of them. And she has a new winery. But her aged Blaufrankisch um, is just um, really um, a fine wine by any measure. Absolutely. Yes, no, they keep really, really well. And, and, and um, we also work with Gerard and Bridget Pitnauer, uh, and they had sold us fairly recently a Blau Frankish from their uh, Rosenberg vineyard, single vineyard from 2011. And that, we've got it on sale now. And I tasted it last night um, for the first time in a, in a few weeks. And it's just absolutely delicious. It's fascinating to see how these wines can evolve. I mean, again, when you think about it in the scheme of things, 
uh, you know, sort of 20 something, 24 pounds off the top of my head, something like that. But for a wine which is uh, already, you know, 12 years old from from Austria, that's that's drinking so beautifully, it's actually incredible value. Um, so it's great. These wines do have huge potential to keep and just they continue to develop lots of layers of aroma and flavor and actually i think i would probably liken them stylistically to northern rhone where you have this sort of wild kind of slightly meaty characters a pepperiness there they've got that sort of brambly fruit black fruit lovely really nice nicely textured wines as well yeah i'm gonna to have to get my chops around that uh 2011 uh, pit now because as you say great producer as well so uh, let's yeah. talk about the um the the main red grape then and that is zweigelt zweigelt yes it's uh, as i said before the, the most planted red grape in austria very significant therefore zweigelt's planted well most of the red grapes are, are predominantly planted in in burgenland but you do get zweigelt and uh frankish as well actually um uh, elsewhere too throughout Austria. I think personally Zweigelt uh, is fantastic when it comes to really delicious entry-level red wines. When it's done again sensitively, when it's not over-oaked, when the freshness and, and sort of vitality of of the, the Zweigelt uh, variety is allowed to do the talking, you can get these wines which reward, you know, 20 minutes of chilling before you open them. They'll be bright, fragrant, fresh, um, almost sort of Beaujolais-esque. Uh, and again, I was having this conversation with some people last night um, who hadn't tried Zweigelt before. And we were saying it's it's like Beaujolais, but again, just a bit spicier. Uh, a bit more sort of intense red currant and spice. Um, I think the wines can be really delicious. I think also what's really interesting about how it, how it slots in alongside Blaufrankisch, uh, for me, Zweigelt is unrivaled uh, in Austria at the entry level, at those sort of, let's say, sub 12 pounds, um, almost just just those styles of wine that you could just consider to be quite simple and charming simply done i don't mean that the wine itself is simple but but not overworked in the winery just um allowed to do its thing the wines are so delicious and then at the top end i think that's when blaufrankisch kind of takes over zweigelt is an interesting one because i think it probably suffers more than blaufrankisch does with this um hang up on trying to make bordeaux style red wines in, in parts of austria um so back in the 80s uh in particular there was an influx of people buying new bordeaux barrels um in that part of austria and trying to replicate the, the you know the that sort of cabernet dominant style with lots of new oak to try and maintain a sense of austrianness they would blend zweigelt with things like cabernet sauvignon and merlot but ultimately, you, you very much lose identity there. But Zweigelt can work very well in a blend, which is almost to its detriment, because the best examples I've had are single varietal Zweigelts that are are allowed to be very unashamedly Zweigelt. Mm. So, I mean, for me personally, I would really encourage winemakers to to not over-oak, to not blend Zweigelt with, with things like Cab or, or Merlot and just let it do its thing. And it can be super, really good stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because... Um, I have a sort of um, patchy history with Zweigelt, you know, crossing of, of Saint Laurent and, uh, and Blaufrankisch, and, and yet I never felt it was greater than the sum of its parts. Mm, and mm. yet, uh, and I had some, you know, some um, cranky oak as well, which does not help at all unless you want mm. um, uh, something heavily vanilla-y, which I don't. Um, so, but yet, um, when you 
Jesse Viana Jr., Master of Wine, guest you know very well, uh, looked after mm-hmm. us when we were judging in Austria. He introduced me to some really delicious, crunchy, fresh examples as Weigelt. And it was transformational. That Beaujolais parallel you mentioned is, is interesting, like a, a Beaujolais crew wine, because it can be a mm-hmm. really great fun, can't it? Absolutely can. Absolutely can. And when it's done well, it should be very reflective of, of the sort of uh, Austrian style and, and personality. You know, um, one thing that I would really con- sort of always encourage Austrian producers to do is be unashamedly Austrian. You know, they've got some fascinating indigenous grape varieties and Zweigel is a prime example. And the more they can just let those varieties shine um, and uh, not interfere with it, not try and manipulate the style of wine, the better because they can make some genuinely lovely, lovely wines. And I think Zweigelt probably is the grape which has suffered the most with there being examples that people have messed around with too much. And therefore the consumer goes, oh, no, I don't really like Zweigelt. Actually, when it's done well, it's delicious and people love it. So, yeah, it's, uh, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, great style of wine. And certainly throughout the summer offers a lot. Stick it in, a, in an ice bucket or in the fridge for a bit, and it's lovely. Delicious. Uh, so that brings us neatly to um, our judging for the IWSC in situ uh, in Austria itself, just by Lake Neusiedl. We had uh, a great time. There were many hundreds of entries. And um, one of the conclusions we drew, actually, when we were asked what we thought at the end was um, we all felt, I think, that they should celebrate their indigenous varieties, celebrate their Austrianness, as you said. What what else did you sort of take away from uh, the judging there uh, in uh, Austria? I think one of the things, which I, I think we all probably knew anyway, but it was just nice for it to be confirmed, was just how good the quality was in general. There were very, very few bad wines. You know, it does it does depend on the countries that you're judging, um, what sort of what sort of day you're going to have in terms of how much you end up wanting to bang your head against the wall. But um, but uh, Austria uh, was a real pleasure to judge. There were an awful lot of medals that were handed out and and all justified um there were very few wines that that were kicked out at all it also did confirm that the the most exciting wines are the ones which are made from the indigenous grape varieties and are and are done in a very sensitive way it was interesting to see however that there is still that hang up on the on the new oak um in particular with a lot of the red wines there's a lot of people entering chardonnays a lot of people producing chardonnays in austria that i personally wasn't completely taken by at all i found it a little bit difficult to work out what it was that they offered that other chardonnays from elsewhere in the world couldn't do better whereas when you're working with the indigenous varieties they are world beating if only because they're incredibly unique you know they're already uh, you already have a have a head start on the world stage in that sense so um yeah, it was a it was a very very interesting exercise and great I think for all of us to be able to just get our heads well and truly into Austria for a, for a couple of days, taste so many wines and uh, and come away I think all feeling quite inspired actually, which is fantastic. They have a uh, rather lovely uh, wine making culture. They work um, very um, in a very collegiate fashion. They work closely. Again, we're generalising here, but uh, compared to other <laughs> countries that I can think of. Um, especially in Europe, um, they seem to have a very kind of friendly rivalry. They seem to work very well together. That's very true. And I think that's very much to their benefit. Um, uh, what I've 
seen in my experience is that those those wine producing countries that have come on so well in the last say 30 years or so are the ones where the producers have all come together and they've all told the same story together um it's much much easier to make an impact on a new market if you're all selling the same message and and one thing that the austrians do very well is they sell austria first and foremost which is great they all get along very well or certainly uh, you know for the most part which is fantastic and they're collaborative and it was really nice for me this last couple of days having a big group of our austrian producers over in the uk seeing them all sitting around a dinner table together and they're they're talking to each other about their winemaking and what they do and uh, and and their approach and and why they do things in a certain way and they're all sharing hints and tips together and um there's a real sense of uh, a lovely sense of security, uh, I think, uh, amongst a lot of these winemakers, which is a very, very good sign. They know that what they're doing, they're doing very, very well. They don't feel uh, a need to to um, sort of keep their secrets to themselves because I think they all see the benefit in, in Austria as a whole, doing as well as it can and, and keeping that quality bar as high as possible. Talking of their cultural heritage and the fact that they like to get around a, a dinner table, and they are amazing hosts, uh, Mm. We should talk about um, the Heurige, or sometimes referred to as the Buschenschank, uh, because that um, makes for a really exciting and different um, destination option for the wine-loving tourist, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, the Heurige is a very uniquely Austrian thing. So basically, uh, this came out of... Uh, Austrians traditionally having their own, a lot, a lot of people having their own sort of family small holding. So they would have a few animals, they'd have a few vines, they'd make some cheese, make some other bits and bobs, you know, slaughter some pigs, make some ham and that sort of thing. Um, and it was a way for them to basically monetize that. So back in the old days, you'd essentially be opening the, the front of your house up. You could drink your, your people could come along, pay to drink your wine and, and, and eat cold food. Um, that was always one of the, the unique things about the Heuregers. The food would have to be cold food. That was the, that was the rule. Um, and that still lives on today. So certainly throughout the summer, lots of lots and lots of Austrian wineries have their own Heuriger, where you can go along, you can have some delicious locally sourced food and drink that winery's wines um and it's a lovely lovely experience i mean doesn't get a doesn't get much more austrian than than that frankly so it's a very uh very nice thing to do and i would highly recommend for every, anybody who's going to holiday in austria that they seek one out um because it's yeah it's it's, it's great and delicious <laughs> yeah and unusually for a capital city uh, you have vineyards kind of flowing from the edges of uh, Vienna so you can stay and have a, a city break you don't need to have a car oh, yeah. or anything like that you can then trudge off into the hills that surround Vienna and you can do the whole Heurega experience yep. in the city yes. can't you exactly Vienna has its own wine region um I think I'm not 100% sure but I think Vienna has more uh area under vine than any other city so it's um it's it's pretty impressive so even though as we were saying earlier if you land into Vienna, you can you can base yourself in Vienna and, and drive out to any number of the wine regions very easily. But yeah, you don't even need to leave the city uh, to get to get a, a fantastic wine experience. Um, you're spoiled for choice. And so whether that's actually going to wineries that are still within the limits of the city or enjoying the numerous wine bars and things, um, there's an awful lot to see and do and, and crucially drink. So yes. Uh, yes, you can't go too far wrong. 
<laughs> no, Vienna is a great city. I, I love it. Uh, so let's um, round off with um, someone listening is inspired by this conversation and, and who could not be inspired by listening to you? Um, then, <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> um, then who should um, they look out for? Give us a few ideas around uh, sort of producers, wines that, uh, uh, that might surprise and delight. Yeah, for sure. So um, there are probably a handful that come to mind for for each uh, key region. One thing that would be a lovely uh, sort of little excursion is just going along the Danube, um, because there are, as we were saying before, a lot of wine regions within quite close proximity to each other. And starting at the furthest end in the Vakau, there is Domaine Vakau, um, who are a fantastic cooperative, and they are well set up to receive visitors as well. And they've got a fantastic shop and tasting experience, um, which uh, which is not to be missed if you're in the area. So Domaine Vakau would be one. Um, I would say going through uh, Krems, uh, Krems style, actually there are a lot of nice little wine bars um, which are worth checking out. But there's also, gosh, lots of little family producers. Who would we see in, well, I think actually one of the most exciting producers in Austria, um, if not one of the most exciting young producers in Europe, is Christina Vess uh, of Weingut Vess. Oh, yes. W-E-S-S. Mm. Um, she's really making waves. She's just recently inherited the, the family winery. She's only 26, I think. And actually, funnily enough, she, she makes our society's own label Austrian Riesling, which just won a gold at Decanter, which is good. So she's, she's, she's on to quite literally a winner. So um, worth checking her out. In Kamptal, you can't go through Kamptal without um, dropping into Schloss Gobelsberg or Brundelmeier, um, two of the great names of Austrian wine full stop uh very historically significant producers um so they are also not to be missed but you you really can't go too far wrong really as we've said throughout this conversation the quality across the board is is fantastic but uh, i would say that they're all worth seeing and then if you're in bergenland drop into the pitnauers gerard and bridget pitnauer they're really at the forefront of this this sort of more out there slightly sort of well yeah new wave as cliched as it is to say um sort of movement and they're making some really fantastic wines so um that would be my little selection plus many more <laughs> yes or just go onto your list at uh, at the wine society and, and, and choose the way yeah okay well um, that, that's uh, yes you've provided the uh the uh, inspiration. So um, thank you so much. I know, as I said at the start, that it's uh, um, a real passion of yours, uh, Austria. Uh, you're so mm. uh, happy to have that uh, portfolio uh, to uh, to play with. Um, so Absolutely. Uh, it's great to be able to spend an hour um, enthusing about Austrian wine because uh, I'm, I'm right up there too as a fan. Um, and it's always great. fun to talk. So Freddie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's an, always a pleasure. Always nice to chat to you and even better when it's chatting to you about Austria. So win, win, win for me. So thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. Cheers. See you soon. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Well, let's round off, of course, with those results from the judging in Austria across two days of judging uh, with four panels of international judges overseen by Master of Wine Dersu Viana Jr. A total of 17 gold medals were awarded to outstanding wines, then an impressive 136 silver medals and 229 bronze medals were awarded. Let's take a look at a handful of those top golds this time. 
And let's begin with the highest score of all, winery Einer Reed Aubert Sandgruber Privat Grüneveltliner 2021 won 97 points. An amazing score for an amazing wine, frankly, because I remember this well. I happened to be on the judging panel for this particular wine, along with Igor Sotrich and Kat Lomax. And um, you don't forget a wine like this in a hurry. Here's our tasting note. Well-defined aromas of honeyed quince, ripe green gauge and waxy grapefruit draw us in before a vibrant and complex palate full of lime and peach. Elegant tones of elderflower, pine and jasmine, remarkably poised and packed full of personality. Well done to them. Next, another high gold. This wine actually tasted in London beforehand. Uh, Domaine Baumgartner Orange by Katerina Baumgartner 2020 won 96 points from a panel overseen by Sarah Abbott, MW, a previous guest on this uh, podcast, of course, along with uh, Sonny Hodge, another previous guest, Barbara Drew, MW, and Marion Rodriguez. And here's their tasting note, an expressive and complex wine featuring peaches, chamomile and green herbs up front. The palate is well-balanced with layers of ripe stone fruit, baked pineapple and a peppery spice. With absolutely racing acidity, this wine is simply brilliant. Next, winning 95 points, a gold medal went to Weingut Johann Schneeberger, Kissenberg Sauvignon Blanc 2021. Uh, This from down south, Sud Stiermark. The judges said, an attractive nose. The palate is oh so vibrant with super fresh acidity balancing the mandarin and white plum fruits. A juicy, creamy texture and a lovely mineral grip keep this balanced throughout the engaging finish. Well, Freddie was on the judging panel that gave our next wine a gold medal. Hans Cheder, Reed Luce Seewinkel, Samling 88, Trockenbeeren Auslaser 2019, won 95 points, getting it uh, that gold medal. Uh, Trockenbeeren Auslaser bit of a mouthful, uh, translates as dry berry selection. And this very sweet wine is made from selected shriveled grapes that have the highest concentrated sugar levels, with uh, those flavours further enhanced by botrytis or noble rot. And the team said this, elegant and expressive wine with candied apricots and citrus fruit aromas, Honeysuckle and ripe melon sweetness on the palate, with fresh acidity giving complexity and vibrant length. We can't conclude without mentioning a delicious Austrian Riesling, uh, Domaine Roland Chan uh, Bach Riesling 2021, won a gold with 95 points. Uh, the panel, including master sommelier Matteo Montone and Inotria buyer Richard Lewis, uh, said this. Intense and pure nose, showing roses, golden apples, lime and smoke. The palate has great weight with lots of balancing acidity. A touch of cream adds another dimension to the round and very long finish. A lovely wine, they said. And what a place to leave it. My thanks to Freddie, as always, and to you for listening. 
There are plenty more medal winners to be found, of course, on the IWSC website. That's IWSC.net. You can find my monthly wine column at clubanalogique.com. And you can, of course, uh, follow Club Analogique and Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And if you'd like to follow me, I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.